You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. This week we continue my own spiritual coming-of-age story, A Rediscovered Faith. Diving deeper into the spiritual journey of Peter Daniel Young. Which actually mirrors my own crisis of faith and spiritual journey. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 27 of the Religion and Fiction podcast, bringing you week three of the Religion and Fiction book club, taking a deep dive into my own novel, A Rediscovered Faith. This is book two in the Reimagined Faith trilogy that I will be launching in a few weeks on Kickstarter, launching the series for modern readers with deep questions. Get more details at faithreimagined.org forward slash Kickstarter. As I've shared, it is sort of a spiritual memoir, if you will, of my own spiritual journey out of Christian fundamentalism into sort of a more progressive version of Christianity and beyond. When I was a seminary student training to be a pastor and kind of flailing around in my own spiritual journey, asking a whole lot of questions about faith, life, and everything in between. A lot of the answers that I had been given to questions that nobody was asking anymore really no longer satisfied me. But to be honest, a lot of the answers to the newer questions asked by our modern world were also sort of leaving me wanting more. And through the care and spiritual mentoring and nurturing of one of a very dear professor of mine, Mike Whitmer, he helped me do a lot of what Peter Daniel Young does in this story, particularly the chapters in this week kind of rediscovering, as the title suggests, my faith by going backward in order to go forward in my own relationship with Christ. And that going backward really did cash itself out in a more regressive version of Christianity, or what Peter sort of frames in this section, this week of chapters, a vintage Christianity. That vintage Christianity has really been the hallmark of my own spiritual journey and walk with Christ and my own relationship with the Christian faith. Seeking to go backward in rediscovering what Christians have always believed about a range of things and encouraging others to do the same. If you've sat with my other writings, if you've been around the J.A. Bauma storytelling block for the last five years or so, you'll know that this idea of contending for and preserving and fighting for even, to use that language, the vintage Christian faith, the once-for-all faith entrusted to God's holy people, 
that has really characterized my own writing from the Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy thriller series all the way forward into the future with my sci-fi apocalyptic thriller series, End Times Chronicles. And I continue that same theme with this series and want to jump right into the chapters without much prologue. So here we go. Week three, chapters 17 through 25. So last week we left off with Peter experiencing a whole lot of tension between a whole lot of relationships, mostly his parents and Calvin Van Dyke, but also himself. There is this rising tension inside with the sort of reimagined faith that he had been experiencing and living the last year and this uh, new encouragement to go vintage, to go backwards, to go forward in his faith as his seminary professor encouraged. And most of that tension arose because of this relationship between his brother, J.T., and the reimagining that he himself was experiencing in his own faith. And with Peter coming alongside him and recognizing his special role in kind of mentoring him in his spiritual walk and journey, he began to take a different eye on this reimagining. Because of that main theme of this book that Calvin Van Dyke introduced into Peter's life. That's this wisdom that ideas have consequences. That truism is going to be driven home this week as we encountered some more ideas from this reimagining effort and how they sort of have bearing on the life of this kind of struggling young man, James Thomas Young. Before we get to that, though, we meet some new characters associated with the West Michigan Prosurgent Gang at a Lectio Divina reading, which is this ancient way of sitting with scripture. And so Peter shows up to this meeting, invited by Pastor Dave, meets Rob and Alex and Hannah, and this woman, Hannah, reads Matthew 9, a sort of familiar passage to a lot of Christians, looking at uh, this sort of dichotomy between the old way and the new way of experiencing faith, particularly faith in Jesus and with the one true God. I'm not going to read it here now, but Peter fixates on the very ideas of freshness and newness that this passage brings about when it comes to faith. As he says, a reimagined Christian faith won't work with old fundamentalism. So here again is this contrast and kind of conflict between this old traditional faith that he had grown up with and then this new thing that he had been encouraging to pursue when it came to understanding faith and his life with Christ. I wondered whether or not you resonated with this section, whether you yourself had this sort of perspective on this old versus new thing in Christianity this old 
traditional fundamentalism versus a new and progressive way of engaging with God and with Christianity? If so, what do you think are those old ways that need to sort of fall to the wayside? The old wineskins, if you will. And what would you identify as the new wineskins, the new ways of engaging with faith? It's interesting because after this uh, encounter with the Lectio Divina reading of Matthew 9, the Persurgent gang sort of meet together afterward, and Alex voices skepticism regarding sort of the innovation of these new prosurgent progressive Christians. He thought that it was becoming too much like what he had left behind in fundamentalism, in actually embracing the sort of rigidity to how Christianity should be expressed in trying to let go of so much and progress it into the future. We hear more about Alex's experience with that past when he and Peter get together for drinks at Founders. And it's interesting because it's sort of similar to what Peter himself experienced in being uh, sort of let go and kicked out of ministry by people who did not like the questions that he was asking. I wonder if you've had a similar experience of people becoming irritated or uncomfortable with the questions that you yourself were asking. If so, what was that experience like? How did it resolve itself or not? And I want to actually sit on that idea of questioning and asking questions because there seems to be an interesting theme here in the life of at least these two characters, but I think it's reflective of the way a lot of churches that I've seen experience and handle people's questions. Why do you think that people don't like this sort of questioning? Or people just simply asking questions about the ways that things have always been done or certain beliefs that are taken for granted within the church? What I found myself as a pastor, as somebody who's been in ministry for at least a decade, questions are threatening, aren't they? They threaten the prevailing way of doing things and believing. Now, I certainly want to caution against disbelieving and doubting because both of those are never looked highly upon in the New Testament. <laughs> in fact, Jesus shakes a finger at Thomas, who is better known as Doubting Thomas, by actually commanding him to not doubt and instead imploring him to believe. So doubt is not a virtue in the Holy Scriptures. Belief and faith both of them are virtues. That's what we should aspire to. But questioning or asking questions isn't necessarily doubt or doubting. It's actually a way for people to arrive at belief and faith, especially when the questions people are asking now are different than the ones that people were asking in the past, which require different answers for those different questions which is a theme I've tried to drive home in 
both of these books, especially beginning in book one, in which Peter was equipped to answer a whole lot of questions that people just were not asking, mostly from his childhood faith. One of those being, if I were to die today and stand before God, and he were to ask me, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? People really aren't all that interested in questions surrounding life after death, in my opinion, in my experience. Instead, those questions revolve much more around life before life after death. And so what are the answers that we as the church have for those questions that people are asking? What do you think are those questions? What are the questions you yourself are asking, interrogating of faith and the Holy Scriptures? The next two chapters, 19 and 20, deepen the tension and the conflict that Peter experiences with two very different groups of people, although still within his family, both JT and then his parents. Of course, 19 begins with him being called to rush to his aid. And Peter does that. He finally finds where JT lives and is astounded at his living conditions. And then is even more gobsmacked, if you will, at finding his brother having a drug overdose. Now, I want to say as an author who wrote this particular book, looking back five years, actually 10 years removed now, from initially writing and then publishing this book, I can appreciate that there's a bit of uh, sensationalism going on here with characterizing JT as this down-and-out guy who is, you know, this drug addict and underemployed who lost out on life because of some high school sinful mix-up, right, with uh, getting a girl pregnant. That is a bit of low-hanging fruit, I can admit, as an author, and I think it's okay for me to kind of look back with a critical eye on my own writing and say, maybe I might have been able to characterize that person differently. I do know that when I was writing this, what I had hoped to convey was that here was a guy who was vulnerable, who was struggling and finding answers to the big questions of life, right? Trying to find his footing and stability. And now he is looking to find what he has been looking for his whole life in this reimagined faith. And it's driven home this theme of ideas having consequences when Peter both finds his brother, who is exploring this alternative version of faith, in this very deplorable condition. And then when he brings him to the hospital, he has this dream, this nightmare of his brother dead. And this haunting theme rises again, ideas of consequences. Again, it's not clear if uh, this is Dr. Van Dyke kind of uh, voicing this from his subconscious, or if it's the Holy Spirit giving him a wake-up call to what Peter himself had been toying with. But again, the, the theme is driven home, that the way we frame faith, the way we frame our faith in Jesus and our necessity of faith in Jesus has real 
life consequences for real life people. And Peter begins to wonder what those consequences might be and how his own hand might have sort of played into those in JT's life. Of course, there is still this tension between where he was and where he thought he was going or thought he should be going and sort of how that movement is affecting his brother. And yet then he's reminded of that past with his parents and their continued questioning of his own reimagination and his abandonment of his faith. I wonder if you yourself have identified with such tension. First, as a child, maybe questioning your childhood faith, wondering about human origin stories, questions about the end of the world as we know it, as I sort of frame between Alfred Morris and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, both of which were which reflected my own tension with explanations for creation and the end times from my own childhood faith and ways that I have sort of moved beyond those childhood narratives surrounding creation and the end. Have you similarly felt that kind of tension with that childhood faith? And how did you resolve that in your own life? Maybe you haven't yet. Or as a parent, have you seen your own child leaving what you might have handed them when it comes to their faith? How have you navigated that tension between you and your child and them walking away or abandoning faith or reimagining or questioning it as Peter has? One of the things that I hope to bring up is for both sides of this tenuous equation is that both are misunderstanding each other, right? You have the parents who believe that Peter is abandoning the faith that they had given them, probably feeling as though they did him wrong, that they failed as parents. But then you have Peter remarking that it has nothing to do with them. It's nothing personal or to do with the personal faith of themselves, Instead, for Peter, it's about his journey. And even more, it's about the people outside the Christian bubble who have a problem with the way that Christianity is framed. It's also about the sort of emotional barriers, the the bigger reasons that people have in rejecting Christianity and not becoming Christians. So for Peter, there is this ministry aspect. There's this missional aspect to his exploration. I hope that this uh, interaction, this conflict between the parent and the child highlights a very common conflict within Christian circles, within familial religious circles, and perhaps both sides might come to an understanding. What might you be able to take away from this misunderstanding? How have you experienced that tension and conflict yourself? And how might this interaction inform the way that you navigate such conflict and such relationships? All right, so these two chapters highlight, again, rising tension in Peter and with relationships, JT and his parents. 
And both of them symbolize two sides of where he's come and where he's going or might go. This traditionalism of his childhood and this more prosurgent, progressive orientation to his faith. This kind of boils over when he goes to work and in a conversation with Lexi. Uh, We get to know more of her story, how she herself grew up in a pretty strict Christian Reformed home. Uh, We'll learn more about her story later in another interaction that'll be super insightful, I think. But here, Peter makes the case that he wonders about whether he can hold on to the fundamentals of the faith without becoming a fundamentalist. Now, she wonders, what on earth does that mean? What are you talking about? And Peter sort of humorously acknowledges that this does sound kind of scary and super backwards and traditional. He's not entirely sure what to make of Van Dyke's encouragement, but it does get him thinking. And I wonder if it gave you some food for thought as well, if it got you thinking about what it might look like to still hold on to the fundamentals of Christian belief without becoming a fundamentalist in Christian practice and Christian legalism. Stay tuned because we're going to keep exploring this theme in the final four chapters of this section. All right, the tension is ratcheting between Peter and his relationships. It's also increasing internally. Tension seems to be one of the themes within the faith structures of this book, both between people but also inside, which I think accurately reflects the journey of faith in general, doesn't it? Tension exists between people and even in ourselves as we ask questions, as we probe, as we push back against the prevailing ways of believing, maybe even the ways we've believed or others around us believe. And the only way forward is to move through that tension, isn't it? And Peter does that in these next few chapters, turning back to the Brian McLaughlin book. And he begins with a chapter on the authority of scripture. I want to read a little bit about uh, the way this author frames the Bible and want to get your feedback on your impression of that understanding. So in the book, Peter reads, My journey seeking a reimagined Christian faith has forced me to ask some hard questions about our most cherished book, the Bible. We have to face the fact that we can't reimagine the Christian faith without also reimagining our approach to Scripture, because we've messed things up with our cherished book. It goes on, It shouldn't be read and interpreted and applied like some do a constitution, as if it were an absolute authority on everything in life. Instead, the Bible is a community library. Elsewhere, he suggests that the spiritual nature of the Bible is that of this inspired library that conserves, protects, informs, and inspires a continuing lively conversation about God. This collection of documents provokes a living and vital discussion into which we are all invited to take part, a discussion through which God himself is revealed. Goes on, God's revelation happens through our discussions and arguments. 
God is revealed when communities of people who share the same basic questions come together to discuss those questions. Revelation unfolds as people come together, interact, and share ideas. I want to get your take on what you think about that perspective on Scripture. Now, this is a fictional representation of actually a very common progressive understanding of what the Bible is and how it functions in the life of the church and in the world. It is a theologically liberal understanding of the Bible in which human actors are simply discussing human ideas about who God is and the nature of reality. I don't use that term pejoratively. I use it academically uh, because part of my background is as a historical theologian where I had academic training in historical theology, a master of theology. And part of my somewhat dissertation, my master thesis, was examining the trajectory of theological liberalism through five generations of Christian thinkers. And this fictional book inside this fictional book, (laughs) very meta, I know, but it represents very accurately very popular voices within progressive, more evangelical circles and popular ideas about the Bible. And I wanted to get those in here at the front end because it's super important how we think of scripture, isn't it? It informs our understanding of who God is, his movement in the world, and what he desires from us. So at the front end, what is your own understanding of Scripture? Does it reflect Brian's? Or is it more reflective of the way Peter begins to push back against that view? Because he does. Check it out. There it was. For Brian, Revelation was about human conversation about God rather than God revealing himself to humanity. And of course, that flies in the face of this sort of dream or word that he interpreted was from God himself. I've revealed, therefore you can know. That's also the way Holy Scripture speaks about itself. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Of course, God-breathed is this very theologically pregnant understanding that God himself has revealed to us his own character his own story, his own sense of movement in the world, all of which is reflected in these very vintage Christian thinkers that Peter returns to. Clement of Alexandria wrote, The Bible is the criterion of our knowledge. What is subject to scrutiny is not believed until it is subject to this test, meaning the test of Scripture. And then Tertullian The Apostle Paul was guided by the same spirit as the author of Genesis was. And the same is true of all Scripture. Again, the sense that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that God has revealed, therefore we can know. And then Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians from last century, he wrote, 
God encounters man in such a way that we can know him. He encounters man in such a way that in this encounter, he still remains God, but also raises man up to be a real genuine knower of himself. God makes himself known and offers himself to us so that we can in fact love him and he creates in us the possibility, the willingness and readiness to know him. What do you make of these sort of historic vintage ways of understanding scripture, especially God's self-revelation to humanity about himself, his story, even ourselves and our own story? Do you think this is a proper corrective to this progressive understanding that the Bible is merely this collection of human conversations about God. In a sense, this vintage way of looking at the Bible and viewing the Bible makes it about God's conversation with us, doesn't it? About himself, his story, our story, ourselves, which then changes the dynamic between us and Scripture, making it about God and his loving self-disclosure to us about himself. Now, of course, Peter humorously sort of begins to worry about regressing, right? About going backwards. And yet he realizes that's exactly what he needs to do. He needs to go backward to go forward in his faith to, as he frames it, go vintage, which I think is a great way to frame it. It's the way I framed it. And of course, this is a reflection of my own spiritual journey. And in the same way that I myself have had this impulse to go backward in my technology, being inundated with these progressive forms of technological innovation, for instance, turning pretty much to paperback or hardback books instead of reading electronic ones, or especially now my routine every weekend is to go drive up to the corner gas station and buy a real physical newspaper. Because unlike our digital devices, nothing else can interrupt my morning breakfast reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal side by side. <laughs> and I kind of convey that same sense of going back in order to save my own sense of sanity by returning to a vintage understanding and a vintage form of my faith in order to save it. That same impulse to worry about regressing, about going backward to fundamentalism that Peter voices reflects somewhat of my own fears during this phase of my life when I was exploring these voices from the past that carried so much wisdom about how to understand God's story and our place in it. What do you think about going backwards in order to go forward? How might that look in your own life to follow in that same pathway? The story continues in chapter 22, when Peter discovers more of the stories behind some of his emerging close friends, Izzy and Jake. Both of them have different perspectives on the Christian faith because of their own 
various backgrounds with it. Izzy is first up to bat, and she reveals how she had this impulse to go into ministry. And she really didn't care what people thought about where she believed Christ was taking her. As she explains it, Lord knows it ain't easy being a Southern female with the call of God in her life. I've been shut down and put down more times than I'd care to count. Yet I never read nowhere in my Bible where the only people God called to be his hands, feet, and mouth were the ones who could pee standing up. That is a bit of a shout out to my fellow female <laughs> Christians who feel a similar call on their lives to jump into ministry and a gospel-centered vocation. Now, of course, there's varying perspectives on women in pastoral ministry at the sort of lead pastor leadership level. I don't want to get into that, but I do want to reference this notion of not caring about what other people think about where you sense God taking you in your relationship with him. Of course, the way that she sort of survived this not caring was to listen to Hebrews 12. As she frames it, this passage of scripture talks about running the race marked out for us and fixing our eyes on Jesus. So I've tried to do that. I've just tried to run the race God's laid out for me while fixing my eyes on Jesus and then unfixing my eyes off of everyone else and their opinion of whether or not I should or should not be permitted to teach his church. I kind of like that perspective on taking our eyes and years off what other people are saying around us and instead fixing our eyes on Jesus and who he is, what he's called us to do, and where he's called us to go. How do you feel about that? How might that inform that posture of not caring, but instead caring about what Jesus says and his holy word, how might that perspective on Izzy inform your own spiritual journey? Of course, there's a balance of not listening purely to our own inner self and listening to the community in which God has placed us to inform our understanding of the Bible and God's story. But there's also the sense of which we need to pay more attention to what Jesus says than the voices around us. It's a balance that I hope uh, plays itself out well in the rest of this story. And one of those voices that speaks into Peter at this moment is Jake and his own story. This revelation that he didn't grow up in the church and instead has just been discovering who God is and what he means to him and the heart of God's love for him in Jesus Christ. So because he didn't grow up in the church, he didn't really have sort of the baggage, if you will, that Peter has, that has confused him and his forward movement in his faith. And then Jake humorously encourages Peter to rediscover Christianity, to rediscover his faith. That takes him aback because, of course, that's voicing what he has been thinking for a bit here and actually maybe plays into the next interaction he has with his brother in which he voices this desire and this sort of thinking that he should 
sort of explore the faith of the past, that he has been beginning to understand the importance of rediscovering the historic Christian faith. Of course, JT's like, what are you talking about? And then Peter humorously reflects this regressive Christian language of Dr. Van Dyke, which sends JT going bonkers. And Peter settles on the vintage Christian language. This interaction opens a breach between the two brothers, and it actually opens sort of a further shifting point in the story itself, creating this dichotomy between Peter, who seems to be looking backward to the historic Christian faith, the vintage faith, and then his brother JT, who is dead set on the future, on progressing Christianity. At this point, I wonder if you identify with either one of them. If you are more interested in progressing the faith or holding on to a vintage understanding, sort of contending for that once-for-all faith entrusted to God's holy people as the Bible talks about in the book of Jude. Regardless of your perspective where you are, you can acknowledge and appreciate the pushback that JT brings to the discussion. And there's a lot of different points that he makes about the past faith of their childhood that he himself is sort of reacting to. And I think that there's a principle here that when people take leave of either faith or aspects of the faith, there's usually a story behind why. And a lot of that comes out in this discussion. Here, JT's pushing back against this idea of the authority of Scripture. Who decides what is authoritative? Who decides how to interpret it? Then there's this exclusivity of Christ and salvation in Him. And JT is honest questions about Muslims and Hindus and friends and people he knows who might not make it eternally because they don't consciously put their faith in Jesus. What happens to them? Then there is this question about who Jesus even is, what his point is, what his role is in the world, why we should follow him, and the difference that he makes in the world. Whether it centers on merely his teachings and his goodness and love, or the cross and the death he died to pay our price in our place, taking upon himself the sins of the world and sacrificing himself in place of you and me. Any of those points resonate with you? Have you asked very similar questions about the authority of Scripture? Who gets to decide what it means? Jesus and who he is, why he matters, what happens to other peoples of faith if they don't believe in him. Perhaps the biggest reveal in this chapter is that JT just doesn't buy it anymore. He doesn't seem to buy the Christian story or Christianity more broadly as a faith, which makes sense that he's reimagining it and following into this more progressive version and it really affects Peter. He doesn't know what his brother believes. And he wonders if what he does believe is something that 
is okay. His brother had voiced belief that everybody was in as if a universal salvation ruled the world. He also voiced belief that God was in other religions, that God's family is bigger than the Christian faith. And then he asks, can someone believe that and be a Christian? Sort of the subtext there is, can someone believe that and be okay eternally? Can they be saved in that sort of Christian language? Have you yourself known people who've voiced very similar things? Who were they? And how did it turn out in their own spiritual life? How was it to walk with them through it? And if you are in the middle of walking with them, how much you encourage them in their spiritual life to seek the truth of Christ and of the love and salvation that he offers. Of course, that's exactly what Peter intends to do, because in reflecting upon this conversation driving home, he really begins to resonate with all of these past voices. Ironically, with what his systematic theology professor, Calvin Van Dyke, had been teaching about preserving the once-for-all faith entrusted to God's holy people. And what a shameful thing it is to disrespect and flat-out deny what both the communion of saints and the Holy Spirit have preserved for us. He goes to bed mumbling, ideas have consequences, and he realizes that he needs to contend not only for his own faith, but for the faith of his brother. And he takes that challenge upon himself. Again, I wonder what it might look like in your life to walk with someone through their own questions, through their own journey, to contend for that friend, that relative, that maybe even brother, sibling's faith. I want to end this week with two more chapters, 24 and 25, and highlight Someone who really has contended for Peter's faith in many ways. Calvin Van Dyke. Because here is a guy who knows all the right stuff, right? As a professor of theology, he studied it. He's also living it as this professor and as this character involved in Peter's life and alongside him and his story and journey. And I think we can acknowledge that here is a guy who has been pretty patient and understanding with Peter and this tension that he's been feeling, this agitation being caught up in the middle of where he came from, right? Growing up with these certain ideas and then rejecting them only to kind of be brought back to them again through Van Dyke's classes, and then seeing the danger of this more progressive version of Christianity, and then also how it's affecting his brother. And all of that comes kind of boiling out in class again with him snapping at Van Dyke and making these remarks that are a bit rude and prideful. And Van Dyke, you know, sort of calls him out on it, asks him to stay back behind after class is over with, and he has a chit-chat with him. But, you know, instead of ripping him and reaming him out, he has a more merciful posture, doesn't he? 
It reminded me of another part of Jude, the book of Jude, where we find that uh, exhortation to contend for the once for all faith entrusted to God's holy people. Towards the end, the same exhortation is offered to believers for those who are sort of wandering away from the faith. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. Van Dyke has showed a lot of mercy to Peter, hasn't he? And one of the ways he shows that here at the last chapter in our week is to acknowledge that tension that he's been feeling, caught between where he's been and where he thinks he should be going. And I want to ask you about your own level of tension when it comes to this idea of reimagining faith or rediscovering faith. Where do you sit along that spectrum? What is it that brings about tension in your own faith or life with other people when it comes to your faith? Or if you have resolved that and have come to a new place in your spiritual journey and walk with Christ, how did that resolution come about? And who might have been instrumental in that resolution? In the same way that Van Dyke will become instrumental in the spiritual journey of Peter as well. I would encourage you to thank the Lord for those people and even take time to thank them for the ways they have come alongside you in your spiritual journey and walk with Christ and shown you mercy to help you deal with the tension that comes from our deep questions about faith, life, and everything in between. Thanks again for joining the Religion and Fiction podcast, as well as the Religion and Fiction book club, exploring week three of A Rediscovered Faith. Next week, we'll dive into chapters 26 through 31, where things really take a turn. And don't forget to support the Kickstarter, starting in a few weeks, launching the series for modern readers with deep questions. Get more details at faithreimagined.org forward slash Kickstarter. Grace and peace to you, and happy reading.